Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, August 25th, 2015. All right, I think we've got the theme worked out. We've got the segments all pulling in the same direction, I think. We're going to find out. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of like really bizarre things, not just bizarre, but like over-the-top bizarre things being said out there by uh, the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-help gurus, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose uh, curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Bible in our small group Bible studies, you know, things like that, uh, to see if actually what they're saying squares with what God's Word says using sound biblical exegesis, hermeneutics, I mean, basic reading comprehension, you know, things like that, um, to see if they're, if they're teaching the sound doctrine, teaching the Christian faith, or if they're teaching false doctrine, twisting the truth, and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to be teaching. And unfortunately, we demonstrate on a day-to-day basis here at Fighting for the Faith, there is a lot of popular teachers out there and authors uh, that uh, we ought not to be listening to at all. In fact, uh, by teaching false doctrine, they're not setting people free. They're keeping them in bondage and not really actually helping them out at all. And uh, so, you know, that's what we cover here at Fighting for the Faith. It's politically incorrect. We do step on toes, try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And, um, yeah, and what I recommend doing, if you're new to the program, it's going to take a little bit of time getting used to all of this. And I'm going to seem like just the meanest gunky head in the whole world. I I get it. I understand it. But listen with an open Bible. Do not give me the benefit of the doubt. Do not listen with an open mind. Have your Bible open. Fact check me. That's what uh, you get to learn how to do while uh, doing this program. All right. We are going to talk about what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin with a Terry Savelle Foy update. That's right, Terry Savelle Foy. And everybody knows they have a unique destiny thingy that they're supposed to be, you know, God's supposed to give you via direct revelation that you're supposed to fulfill, right? 
yeah, you should be saying, no, that's not what the Bible says. And if you said that, I would say yeah, you get a star on your star chart. That's absolutely true. But uh, Terry Savelle Foy, well, she's of this opinion that we all have these unique destinies that we're supposed to be receiving from God. And apparently we can learn something about achieving these divine destinies uh, by learning something from the success of the Beatles. Now, by the way, I enjoy the Beatles. I love their music. I've never considered them an important source of figuring out what, you know, sound biblical doctrine is. But, hey, you know, Terry is prone to finding um, apparently um, spiritual Christian doctrine in the weirdest of places like Success Magazine and other places like that. So we'll tune in to see what she's got there. Then we're going to switch gears, do a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update and uh, checking in with the new mystics, John Crowder, uh, recently was in Mexico and you're going to hear, you know, uh, an interpreter explaining what it is that he's supposedly preaching and teaching. And I don't even know how to explain what it is that we're going to be hearing from him, except for, um, have you ever considered that you have um, an airport for angels inside of your belly? Hmm. <laughs> you're going, what? Yeah, I know. You're, you're probably We're probably going to have to play our uh, standard warning for that segment. Uh, we'll take a break sometime in there. Then we have a... Um, a Beth Moore update, a Beth Moore update, and uh, we're going to pay close attention to what she's doing supposedly with scripture, and uh, we're going to be hearing her teaching about um, what I would consider to be accelerated sanctification. You know, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's a weird teaching, and then we're going to end off our number one with uh, 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 Professor Ryan Stokes of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and him making the case that Jesus was a pirate. And uh, the best thing I can do with this segment is you need to stay with it and listen until the end. That's the best way I can put it um, because there's, there's a wonderful twist in all of this. And uh, and so and then in hour number two, we're going to head back to Montana to uh, narrate church uh, Adam Hushka. And I'll give you the details about the sermon we'll be reviewing in hour number two. I'll give the details in hour number two. It's um, wow. I don't even know what to think of that sermon, but uh, it's you know, it's a rambling road. To absolutely nowhere is probably a good way of putting it. So that will round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're going to be beginning with a Terry Savelle Foy update, that requires us to do this. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. That's right. Uh, the uh, Barbie Girl theme song. Uh, that means only one thing. We're going to be hearing from Terry Savelle Foy, 
And uh, she's going to be talking about apparently, you know, how each of us have some kind of a divine dream destiny thingy that we're supposed to be fulfilling. And apparently we can learn how to fulfill that by studying the success of the uh, Beatles. Yeah. Here's Terry Savelle Foy to explain. For watching this week. Well, I want to talk to you about something a little different. What in the world can you learn about success from the Beatles? Um, why do I need to learn about success from the Beatles or anybody? What, what, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with Jesus? So this whole month, I've been talking about your calling is calling. That you have a calling. You have a divine assignment. There's something God wants you to do during your time on earth, right? Yeah, right. And he wants me to um, explain to the body of Christ how people like you aren't teaching sound doctrine and distracting us away from Jesus, you know, and having us focus in on ourselves and chasing after these dream destiny thingies that uh, nowhere in Scripture are we taught to uh, look for it. I mean, you're teaching an exotic doctrine that is not part of the Christian church in its entire history until folks like you showed up. Well, you have to identify that calling, and then you have to prepare for it. You know, let me just point this out real quick. You have certain gifts, you have certain talents that God has given you that Mm -hmm. are unique to you. Yeah. In fact, a lot of times... Our gifts are things that come so natural to us that we don't even think of them as gifts. You know, what are those things that people have said to you, you are so good at that, and you think... Um, Exposing heretics and false teachers? So good at that, anybody can do this. Well, that's just one indicator of a gift that God has given you. Let me just tell you, not just everybody can do things the way you do them. So you have to identify... Yeah, I'm glad that you recognize that fact about me. Now, I wish that you would listen to what I'm saying. You're not teaching people anything that the Bible actually teaches. Your gifts, if it's cooking, if it's, you know, administrative work, if it's proofreading, if it's writing, if it's decorating, designing... Biblical discernment. ...work, whatever it is, identify that gift, and then I want to challenge you to become an expert in that gift. Okay. I do it every day. Does that count? I'm an expert. You know, I heard someone say one time, there's no traffic jams at the extra mile. What does that mean? Most people are not willing to go the extra mile to achieve their dreams. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. When I was growing up, I had no desire to, <laughs> I was not saying, I really want to do a radio program where I expose false doctrine. I, yeah, I, it was never a dream of mine. I wanted to be a fighter pilot, yeah. An expert. You know, one time the Lord said to me, don't be average and your life won't be average. The, the Lord said that to you. Okay, folks, grab your Bibles and uh, in the white space after the book of Maps, write in the book of Terry Savelle Foy, um, and then write down with the, the Lord spoke to Terry Savelle Foy about, you know, having an average life by being average. This is a, this is an important new revelation from God. You know, this is on you. You don't be average and your life won't be average. You know, somebody once said average is as close to the bottom as it is the top. Well, God never meant for you to live an average life, to be an average person, to have an average salary, live in an average home. So so God never intended any Christian to have an average salary. Do you have a biblical text for that? Because Jesus seems to warn us about the love of money and how money is a snare, you know? He wants you to excel. He wants you to succeed, to keep climbing up. 
and going higher and higher into your purpose and your calling. But it's going to require that you go the extra mile. So going the extra mile, you know, somebody once said that if you want to become an expert in your field, commit one hour a day to studying in your field. And within five years time, you could become an expert in that field. Yeah, I've been doing this five days a week now for more than seven years. I guess it makes me an expert. I had no idea. Now listen to this. This was something I read about the Beatles. In 1960, while they were still an unknown high school rock band, the Beatles went to Hamburg, Germany to play in the local clubs. Well, listen to this. The group was underpaid. The acoustics were terrible. The audience was unappreciative. So what did the Beatles get out of this Hamburg experience? Hours and hours of playing time. Non-stop hours of playing time that forced them to get better. As the Beatles grew in skill, audiences demanded more performances, more playing time. By 1962, they were playing eight hours per night, seven nights per week. That's a ton of practice time. By 1964, the year they burst onto the international scene, the Beatles had played over 1,200 concerts together. By way of comparison, most bands today do not play 1,200 concerts their entire career. Well, what I'm saying is the Beatles went the extra mile. All those hours of playing time, practicing in those small venues, nobody's clapping for them, but they're practicing, they're playing, they're playing. Hours and hours, they got better and better and better. In other words, they went the extra mile. All right, so I, I think I understand the you know the important takeaway from this lesson, spiritual lesson that we're supposed to be learning from the Beatles, and that is that you, the uh, listening audience of uh, Fighting for the Faith, uh, by dedicating the, the hours that you put in listening to this program, you have all become experts at uh, biblical discernment, sound doctrine, and um, and uh, understanding how to spot and warn people about false doctrine and those who are purveyors of it. So I just think of it this way. All of the hours that you're listening to this program, you now, like me, have become experts in these things. I think that's a good way to think about it. Moving along. Time for a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Roly bowl a ball, roly bowl a ball, singing roly bowl a ball a penny a pitch. That's right, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. And before we get into this, I literally am going to have to play our standard warning. And the reason why is because I don't want you to hurt yourself uh, while listening to this next segment. We're going to be listening to one of the new mystics, John Crowder. This is a guy who's become famous and uh, literally speaks at large venues, Christian churches and places like that, um, and does missionary work around the world. 
not really teaching people sound doctrine or teaching us about Jesus, but uh, you know, basically teaching bizarre things like getting drunk on the glory and uh, stuff like that. And so we're going to be listening to uh, him down in Mexico and uh, see if you can make heads or tails of this. But like I said, before we actually play it, I have to do this. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You have been warned. Here's John Crowder, along with uh, you know Spanish translation. Here we go. No necesitas cielo abierto. Tú eres cielo abierto. You have Monterey International Airport for angels running right through your belly. Tú tienes el Okay, so I am an open heaven, and I have an airport for angels inside of my belly. You know, um, out of all of the times I've read through the scriptures, I don't recall any of the passages saying that I was an open heaven and that I have angels living in my belly. How did he get this? Well, let's continue. Tú tienes el aeropuerto internacional de Monterrey lleno de ángeles dentro de tu panza. You can walk right through the plaza, loose a million angels right out of your belly. Puedes estar caminando por una plaza y hay I can loose a million angels right out of my belly like a machine gun or a typewriter. I'm I'm a little confused by the metaphor here. Ángeles saliendo de tu pancita. You are a carrier of open heaven. Amen. Eres un portador del cielo abierto. Amen. You say, what, what are you saying? I've got, I've got angels inside of me. ¿Qué me estás diciendo? Que tengo ángeles adentro. You used to have demons in there. Pues antes tenías. Oh, that's where he gets it from. Well, apparently, because you could be possessed by demons. Well, then that means logically that you can also be possessed by angels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't need angels. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You've got the whole kingdom in there. Tienes todo el reino ahí adentro. You've got four-headed critters with eyeballs in their armpits. Tienes criaturas cubiertas de ojos. So I have four-headed critters with eyeballs in their armpits inside of my belly. I I had no idea. Ojos hasta abajo de las de los brazos. You've got a whole furniture section in there. Elders on their thrones with crowns. Y hasta tienes todo un de- inside of my belly, and the the Bible teaches this. De mueblería con los ancianos, con las coronas. Eres más grande por dentro. So you're a TARDIS and I'm a TARDIS. Who knew? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So much. Yeah, I couldn't say hallelujah to this. Otherwise, I fear that God would strike me dead with lightning, you know? Glory on you. Mucha gloria en ti. Oh, but it's not that easy, brother. No, pero no es tan fácil, hermano. 
There's a lot of breaking that has to happen in my life. Es que hay mucho quebrantamiento que todavía necesito en mi vida. Holiness comes after a long process. Santidad viene después de un largo proceso. Sanctification is a process. Now, weird here is you're going to see a connection. I know this is a stretch, but you're going to see a connection between what you're hearing John Crowder say right now. Sanctification is a process, you know, and and, um, and what we're going to be hearing from Beth Moore. I, yeah, just trust me, I, the, the two are connected. Proceso. Sanctification is not a process. Sanctification no es un proceso. Sanctification is a person. Sanctification is una persona. Where, you- uh, where are you getting your doctrine of sanctification? ¿De dónde sacado esa teología? The Bible. De la Biblia. First Corinthians 1, he has become our sanctification. Primera de Corintios 1, él se ha hecho nuestra santificación. Now let's check the passage that he is referencing there to see if sanctification, because sanctification is a person, that means you have angels flying out of your belly, millions of them, the whole kingdom sitting inside of your belly. The verse in question, by the way, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Now, in this particular case, you, you might need a little bit of help understanding how the word is being used that is being referenced there. Now, the word is hagiasmos, and I'll explain it as we get there. But uh, let's uh, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, get a little bit of context, and see what's going on with this word. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, uh, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. Uh, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, yeah, in the context, the question is, is what does the word sanctification mean? And if you check it out by using another translation, I'm using the ESV, it's oftentimes a good thing, to, if you're not sure what something means, check a few translations. And when we look at the NIV, this helps us out a little bit. Here's what the NIV says at verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The uh, NIV translates hagiosmos as holiness, which is literally what it means. And so what he's doing there is he's just referencing a passage, but he's not exegeting it. He's ripped it out of context to fit it into this absurd rant that he's on. And he's not really teaching us what the Bible says. And so, yeah, just because 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says that Christ has become our hagiasmas, our holiness or our sanctification, does not mean what it means, what he says it's meaning here, and that therefore you have the kingdom of God inside of your belly, and angels can you know be you know released by the millions right out of your belly. It's not what Paul is saying at all. The 
right. A ver, déjame ver si estoy en lo correcto. Usted está diciendo que soy santo. Está diciendo que yo tengo la plenitud de Dios. Y me está diciendo que el cielo está en mi pancita. Let me help you out with something. Déjame ayudarte con algo. I can't believe that this huge crowd of people is, has not walked out on this man. You are much bigger than heaven. Tú eres... You, you, you and I, we're much bigger than heaven. What on earth is he talking about? Más grande que el cielo. Mucho más grande. You think heaven is a big palace where Jesus lives? ¿Tú crees que el cielo es un gran palacio donde vive Jesús? Paul says, heaven is in Christ. Pa Pablo dijo que el cielo está en Cristo. The him. Los cielos no lo pueden contener. He takes up all the space. Porque él ya ocupa todo el espacio. Glory. Gloria. We think God was over here. Creemos que Dios está aquí. And he made heaven and earth over there. Y que él hizo el cielo y la tierra allá. But there is no over there. Pero no hay un allá. He takes up all the space. Él toma todo el espacio. David said, if I go to the depths of hell, there you are. He takes up all the space. David dijo, si voy al abismo del infierno, ahí va. Okay, so this is weird. Notice he's not doing doctrine by exegeting passages. He's basically ripping things out of context and then extrapolating what he believes is logic, but this is irrationality because he's not even paying attention to even how to properly use the categories that he's operating here. Talking about God's omnipresence in terms of spatial relationships and somehow that, that means we're bigger than heaven, oh boy, this is a mess. Porque él toma todo el espacio. Entonces, cuando él hizo la creación, ¿dónde la puso? No hay una allá, una acá. Entonces, nada más le hizo y la puso allá adentro. So, God made a little spot within himself for creation. Which biblical text says this again? Where you are. Y ahorita ahí es donde tú estás. In heaven. En el cielo. In Christ. En Cristo. And you have Christ in you. Y tienes a Cristo en ti. In heaven in you. Y el cielo en ti. Well, it sure doesn't look like it. Pues no parece. Did you watch CNN today? Hoy vio CNN las noticias. There's trouble in the world. Hay problemas allá afuera en el mundo. Doesn't feel like I'm in heaven on earth. No se siente como si estoy en el cielo en la tierra. It's a process. Es un proceso. It's a lot of hard work. Es mucho trabajo duro. It's a lot of breaking. Es mucho quebrantamiento. We need some desert seasons. Necesitamos a veces tiempos de desierto. Make it dry. Que sea seco. Dry. Seco, seco. Because the more painful it is, Porque entre más doloroso sea, the holier, más santo. The more depressing it is. Entre más And this is what we call a straw man in logic, by the way. Sea, más santo. Más santo será. There are no deserts on this side of the Jordan River. No hay desiertos de este lado del río del Jordán. You have passed through the death of Christ in his baptism and now you are on the other side. Tú has pasado a través de la muerte de Cristo y su bautismo y ahora estás donde él está. 
right here on Monterrey. Aquí mismo en Monterrey. You are in a land flowing with milk and honey. Tú eres la tierra que donde fluye leche y miel. Jesus Christ is the land flowing with milk and honey. Cristo Jesús es la tierra donde fluye leche y miel. The question is what is your perspective? La cuestión es cuál es tu perspectiva. Do you have eyes to see it? Tienes ojos para verlo? Yeah, you know, like the uh, emperor in his new clothes do you have eyes to see the fabric the spiritual fabric that uh, john crowder is uh, spinning here i mean when once you put it on you can go parading in the streets if you like i mean people will absolutely gawk at uh, what you're wearing i'm sure um yeah this is the best way i can put it is is that john crowder just reminds me of demonic mockery you know, that's what I think he really traffics in. And that's not biblical teaching at all. There's nothing rational, biblical, exegetical, or sound in what he's saying. And anything sound that he does accidentally say, that's always the bait on the hook for the major lie that he's, um, that he's actually teaching. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Beth Moore update, and then we're going to hear from a, a, a seminary prof about how Jesus... Uh, apparently was a, a pirate. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. 
day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus the walk, walk is, is a, a trap. trap. If you charge even so much to suggest the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. <laughs> well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. <laughs> Maybe the world would be better off if they did. <laughs> this is Dr. Curtis Lyons. 
I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that proof texting and eisegesis are not actually valid ways of studying God's Word. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us, by the way. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. That's right, time for a Beth Moore update. Able to narcissate a biblical passage faster than a hummingbird who's had three mocha lattes over at uh, Starbucks. Yeah, that's right. Able to read herself into a biblical text, twist it, mangle it, and then make it appear like it's sound biblical exegesis and like nobody else. It's time for another session of Beth Moore twisting God's Word. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, what we're going to be listening to today uh, with this special edition, it's not really a special edition, but the latest edition of Beth Moore Twisting God's Word, we're going to be heading over to the Life Today television program, and uh, we're going to be listening as Beth Moore describes, well, the only way I can describe what she's describing it, it, well, it's not biblical exegesis. It's speculation, if you would, based upon a word study that she did. But it has to do with something to the effect of, you know, like instantaneous or rapid or accelerated sanctification. Yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of what it is that we're going to be listening to. So without any further ado, here is Beth Moore from Life Today. Here we go. Somehow, you and I have been created in the infinite mercy of God with this thing called, that the world calls, that Webster's would call resilience. All right. Now, notice she didn't start with a biblical passage. She started with a a theological-ish type statement. So we've been created in the image of, or in the mercy of God with something that the world would call resilience. You got a biblical text for that? Think about it with me. Resilience. Now, let, let me tell you what's what's also true. There are things that we don't necessarily bounce back from for years and years and years and years. But that's not our present series. I want you to find our present series refreshing because here's what our present series is about. That God has somehow woven our souls in such a way where they are prone to the mending of God. I want you. Do you have a text that says that? To be able to glance back and look over your shoulder and appreciate the times in your life when actually something should have completely taken you out. And yet, lo and behold, here you are. This is what I want to talk to you about in the present series. Yeah, what does that even mean? Because, I mean, that can mean a lot of different things for the many different people that you're speaking to via this television medium. All the times that something should have knocked you down where you could not have gotten back up for 20 solid years. Yet here you sit. There you stand. That very woman, that very man will get in the car and drive to work. Should have been completely taken out. I don't know what she's talking about. This thing called resilience. Listen, so much we still hurt over, but that is... This thing called resilience. What our present series is about. This series is about holy resilience. Uh, things holy resilience uh-huh. that should have taken 20 years that actually took 10 things that should have taken 10 years but actually took one things that should have taken one year but you know actually i worked through that with the lord jesus christ in a month things that should have taken a month that ended up taking a week things that should have taken a week that ended up taking a day i just want to which passage of the bible is she exegeting that teaches this doctrine Present the concept to you that sometimes, sometimes we come back from something stunningly fast. Uh huh. So we're going to create doctrine from our experiences rather than draw it out of the written word of God. Yeah, that's no way to do Christian doctrine or theology. 
This series is about appreciating that, knowing that can exist, it actually can happen, and come into a place where we find a gratitude for it. I'm not talking about shortcuts here. I believe in the process of healing, the process of wholeness, lifelong sanctification, lifelong growing in the scriptures and growing in our relationship with Christ. I'm not talking about shortcuts. I'm talking about letting a work go so deep where it letting a work. Oh, so it's up to me. So I've got to learn how to let a work go deep. Where in the scripture does it say that we are supposed to learn how to let a work go deep? Plunges there instead of seeps and seeps and seeps and seeps. One slow drop at a time. What if we removed every defense and just said to God, What if? What if? Yeah, this is no way of doing theology. What if? What if? What if we did this? What if we did? What if we, let's just imagine this ideal future? What if? And see, now all we've got to do is let God plunge deep with some kind of healing thing so that we can compress and accelerate, uh, you know, healing or whatever that God's supposedly doing. What if? What if? What if you actually exegeted a biblical text there, Beth? Because I don't think you're actually teaching what God's word says at all. Go for it. I will hold nothing back from you. I will not put my hand over my heart. I will not put my hand over my head. You have full access. This doesn't have to be. Yeah, what if you told that to God? Well, then you'd be lying to him. Yeah, good luck on fulfilling that promise to God. It ain't going to happen. Like pulling teeth. You just, Lord, go for it. Go for it. What? What? If that happened, because listen, not every lasting work has to be. Would that be refreshing to anybody? So not every lasting work has to be long. Again, which biblical text are you drawing this out of exactly? I looked up resilience. This was just one definition of it. Just out. Yeah. Did you find this in a Greek lexicon and the word resilience in, in relation to a passage that's talking about sanctification the way you're describing it here i don't think you're going to find a text like that here um on the web it says this just just listen to it resilience af, uh, out of um dictionary um on uh the internet it says this the ability to recover quickly from illness change or misfortune buoyancy i love that word buoyancy just the ability to come back up float back up i love this one this is the second part of the definition the property of a material that enables it to resume its original shape or position after being listen bent stretched or compressed i mean go go those three places with me how's your week been anybody just like been bent stretched or i love the opposite of stretch just compressed i mean like no you're just like packed up somebody could put you in their purse today you know what i'm saying that's what we're talking about here this lesson this present series is about getting our bounce back look at one another and say it's time to get your bounce back okay so we're now tiggers okay got it i got to get my bounce back i mean anybody be into that would anybody think that would be refreshing to just get a little bounce back we don't have to i feel like she's selling me something 
20 years off of us to get some bounce back. We could have it right now at exactly this point in our lives. Yeah, which text is saying this again? Started looking up verses. I love a concordance so much. I love just running a word. Okay, so you ran a word study, and that's the basis of this speculative doctrine that you're supposedly teaching us and going to show us from God's word that clearly is possible. And seeing every single place that it appears in the word of God. So I ran the word speedily. Okay, so she looked for the word speedily. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a wonderful sight. It was a wonderful sight. You would be so glad to know there are some things that God does speedily. Anybody need to know that? Yeah. Are any of these verses that you're going to talk about where you, the word speedily is mentioned in scripture, talk about, well, what you've been saying? Listen to some of these verses that are us crying out to him for a speedy work. Psalm 102 verse. Us crying out for a speedy work. Notice how she, she's already kind of defined it. And then she's going to try to pack the biblical text into her Definition two. It says this: Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call. All right. So Psalm one hundred two two: Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call. I mean, I'm assuming that would be a day, you know, a call when you're in the midst of trouble or something like that. It's not talking about God somehow taking, you know, something that would take you twenty years to emotionally, spiritually heal from, and making it so you can heal heal from it in you know a year's time instead that's not what psalm 102 is saying psalm 79 verse 8 is very similar to it it says this let your compassion come speedily to meet us for we are brought very low i love yeah so god's compassion coming to us not again not the same as what you described that i love that let your compassion come speedily to meet us for we are brought very low so going that way moving that direction we're trying to move toward him draw near to god and we're going let draw near quickly come to me quickly let your compassion come speedily to me yeah again that just because the word speedily is used there it does not mean you know that it God is promising to do what you've described at the beginning of this lesson. Isaiah 51, 14, this is the Lord God to his people. He who is bowed low shall speedily be released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's close, but still no cigar. Speedily. Speedily, yes. The word speedily. Uh-huh. Anybody? Anybody think it would be such a wonderful thing for something not to just take half a forever Anybody? All right. (laughs) Maybe she needs to go and discuss this with her therapist. You know, um, this is not Christian doctrine, nor is it even closely related to the Christian doctrine of sanctification. Just like pull the word immediately back into your vocabulary, Lord. I mean, are there some things we can do that we can just get the thing done? Uh, did, did you hear that? Is there, Are there some things we can do to get the thing done? So we can have speedy healing, speedy sanctification, speedy whatever. Yeah, this is uh, not how you handle God's word. This is something completely different is a form of proof texting and eisegesis. And talking about eisegesis, we're going to switch gears one more time here. Oh, 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 oh,
Now, um, switching gears, uh, this is a little bit of a weird segue here, but we're going to be listening to uh, a little bit of a lesson, if you would, or chapel service delivered at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, delivered by uh, the Professor Ryan Stokes. And he's going to make the claim that Jesus was a pirate. Now, you have to listen to this in its entirety because there is an actual twist to this that I think is fantastic. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is uh, Professor Ryan Stokes of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and his claim that Jesus was a pirate. Here we go. Thank you, Dr. White, for that introduction, most of which was very kind. It is my pleasure this morning uh, to be speaking before you. It means a lot to me personally to be speaking in the chapel of a seminary where the students and the faculty and the administrators revere God's Word, where they respect God's Word. Uh, As you know, I am an Old Testament professor here. Uh, Although I'm an Old Testament professor, I also enjoy reading the New Testament from time to time. Uh, Sometimes when I hit Malachi, my momentum just carries me on into the next next section of the Bible, and and so I do dabble in that. I've studied uh, New Testament. One of the fields of New Testament studies, or one of the subfields of New Testament studies is that I that I enjoy that fascinates me and has for a long time is the quest for the historical Jesus. Now, those of you who've had uh, basic New Testament here, I'm sure know well the quest for the historical Jesus. It's the attempt to look at all of our historical sources, all of the sources available to us, and ask the question, who really was Jesus? What can we say about the Jesus of history? Uh, There are several theories as to who Jesus actually was, some of them quite compatible with the gospel Uh, presentation of Jesus, with the presentation of Jesus found in our four Gospels of the New Testament. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, Jesus is a prophet preaching the kingdom of God. Uh, Some ideas that historical Jesus scholars have proposed are less compatible with the New Testament portrait of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, for instance, uh, is argued by some to be a Stoic philosopher or a magician of some sort. I am very happy this morning to present to you the latest findings of historical Jesus research. Let me me tell you exactly what I mean by that. When I say the latest findings of research, I mean what any self-respecting scholar means when he says that. I mean, it's an idea I had this morning while I was eating breakfast that will never be published. So here are the latest findings of historical Jesus research. Not only was Jesus a prophet, not only was Jesus the Messiah, but Jesus, it may be surprising to some of you to learn, was a pirate. I thought I'd get a couple of amens right there. A little disappointed, so I'm striking out so far. Right? Jesus was a pirate. I have three lines of evidence. I I know this may sound strange to you, but, but hear me out. I have three lines of evidence that suggest to me, and and I I think you will agree once I've presented them to you, uh, but three lines of evidence that suggest that Jesus was in fact a pirate. First of all, and by the way, I even have an acrostic for you. So, it's a great sermon, right? Uh, First of all, Jesus' activities 
were the activities of a pirate, or at least his activities were consistent with those activities of a pirate. To shorten this, I don't have any verses for you, but, but let me remind you. <laughs> yes. Hear me out. Jesus was constantly eating with tax gatherers and sinners. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, when he first started his ministry, the first thing he did was he found some men who had a boat. And he spent a lot of time at sea. He even taught on boats sometimes. A lot of time in a ship at sea. Uh, not only was Jesus... Uh, not only did he hang out with tax gatherers and sinners, not only was he often on boats, uh, but he also was constantly running into trouble with the law, wasn't he? And, okay, you're not persuaded quite yet. Uh, bear with me, I, I realize the evidence is circumstantial so far, but I think my next two points will, will go ahead and convince you. So Jesus' activities were the activities of Pilate. Also, Jesus' rhetoric was the rhetoric of a pirate. In other words, Jesus talked like a pirate would talk. Let me give you an example. Matthew thirteen fifty-five: The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, what did he do? He hid it again. Now, who likes treasure and goes around hiding it? Now think, Jesus is using illustrations, uh, using illustrations to teach the kingdom of God here. He's using what is familiar to his audience to, to communicate what to them, uh, communicate to them what is less familiar. And, and something that was familiar to him was buried treasure. Matthew twenty-five, fourteen through fifteen and eighteen. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Who goes around burying other people's money? Other people's gold. Pirates. <laughs> Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are just a few of the verses where Jesus talks about treasure. Not only did, did Jesus use pirate illustrations to, to teach the people about the kingdom of God, he also used pirate illustrations to teach about sin. Matthew 18.6 If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. Who drowns people in the depths of the sea? Matthew 7, 4. How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Okay, you have people drowning in the sea and you have planks. Who talks like that? Buried treasure, the sea, planks, pirates. Not only were Jesus' activities consistent with the activities of a pirate, not only was his rhetoric the rhetoric of a pirate, but the requirements that Jesus had for his followers were the requirements of pirates. And his acrostic reads, activities, rhetoric, and requirements, spelling out, R. You like my acrostic, huh? R.
You may not know this about Jesus' requirements. I'm glad I have this wireless mic because I'm going to step over here. But did you know that Jesus required his followers to have one of these bad boys? He's holding a sword. He required his followers to have a sword. Luke 22:36. And yes, he is holding a sword. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. You need something to keep your gold in and you need a sword. The requirements of a pirate. Finally, and I think this clinches it. If if you're not with me yet, I think you'll be with me after this next one. Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, (laughs) gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And he's just put on a pirate eye patch on his right eye. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. And he's now pulling out a uh, pirate hook that he's now put on his right hand. So he has a eye patch on his right eye, a, uh, a pirate hook on his right hand, and he's holding a sword with his left. Now, I ask you, who wants their followers to look like this? And that is why I say that Jesus must have been a pirate, and I imagine that you agree with me wholeheartedly by this point. Obviously, that was ridiculous. Yes, it was. Watch the turn. Here it is. Uh, Jesus was no more a pirate than I am a knight. Uh, It's not real. What was wrong with what I said? I uh, took scripture out of context. I, uh, the main problem with what I did is I read my own ideas into it. That's right. You read your own. That's called eisegesis. I, did, I didn't find what God had to communicate to us in scripture, but I had an idea. I had a preconceived notion that I took to scripture and I interpreted, interpreted scripture. At least I pretended to interpret scripture in order to arrive at a conclusion that I had already established beforehand. And here's my question for you, my real question for you today. What do you do with the Bible? What is it that you are doing with the Bible when you claim to be interpreting and teaching it? Great question, don't you think? And with that silly pirate illustration... Uh, Ryan Stokes did a very good job of demonstrating what so many of the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses are doing. They're not exegeting God's Word. They're reading their own ideas into it and creating the false impression that what they're teaching is actually found in God's Word when it isn't. 
We just heard Beth Moore do that just a few minutes ago, did we not? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, heading to Narrate Church in Helena, Montana, and listening to an Adam Hushka sermon. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc., but simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engaged stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's been a while since we've reviewed an Adam Hushka sermon. I don't even know what. I mean, this is a long road to nowhere is the only way I can describe it.
Let's do this right. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Narrate Church, Helena, Montana. Adam Hushka presiding. The name of the sermon we're we'll listening to is Help I Feel. False Prophet? Yeah, False Prophet question mark. I mean, I don't even know what to make of the name of this sermon, yet alone the sermon itself. It is absolutely bizarre. In fact, let me read to you the um, the description of this sermon. Emotions? Seriously? What is the point? Do we really need all of them? Any of them? How do your thoughts about the future impact you emotionally? Yeah, that's the description of the sermon. So, um, best thing I could do is say, have a seat. Fuzzy bunny slippers, tinfoil pyramid hat, anything like that will help. And let me back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Adam Hushka and Help I Feel. False prophet? Here we go. But we started the series a couple weeks ago called Help I Feel. And there's lots of ways you could say that, which is part of the, the idea behind the series. You could say that with rejection. You could say that with a sense of indignation. You could say that with a sense of depression. But ultimately what we're exploring is the fact that, that, that we're, we're profoundly feeling beings, like we feel profoundly. And that oftentimes what happens in contexts like this is, is that in order to be a disciple of whatever that means, <clears throat> the idea is, is you shut off feeling and you just go purely cerebral, purely mental, purely on the brain level. And what we've been exploring, first of all, in the first week was that Jesus felt, he felt profoundly. And the more time you spend with the Gospels with this lens on, the more you see his, his uh, just being confronted by the myriad emotion that you and I deal with. And yet he was God and was closer to the Father than anyone else. And so there's a sense of encouragement from that. And in the first week, what we explored was that, that Jesus was able to identify that he was feeling and he even had words for it. And so the first week, really, the challenge was to begin to expand our vocabulary. We've talked about the fact that we have over 5,000 words in the English language uh, that we can use to articulate what we're feeling. And so that was the first challenge, was that you would go and write a really good country music song. <laughs> what? Full of feeling. And then in the second week, uh, we really asked the question, like, okay, so seriously, what is the point? Is it just so that country music translates or that you can write good poetry or you could go to work for Hallmark? Like, what's the point of being able to articulate feeling? And what we looked at last week was uh, we, we just set up a few different pillars of Legos, really, and, and just as this visual reminder that there's three things that we all experience in life. We all experience feelings. We all also have core values, and we also behave. And what we explored last week was... <laughs> Were you doing group therapy? What does this have to do with any biblical text? Was that what you see in Jesus' example was this way of, of understanding what he's feeling. But because he was so articulate and aware of what he... You psychoanalyze Jesus? Really? What he was feeling, he was able to prevent himself from sabotaging his behavior uh, by instead living from his core values. So after psychoanalyzing Jesus, you came to the conclusion that he didn't self-sabotage by because he lived from his core values. Yeah, which text says that again? How many of you found that to be really easy this week? 
How, how many of you just went one for a hundred? That was my goal. One for a hundred. I think I made one for a hundred. The 99 were painful. So, so what I, where I want to go for the rest of this conversation, you guys, is I just want to drill in on a, drill down on a few specific areas. The, the rest of this conversation. Is, and I guess, admittedly, this is a fairly autobiographical series, and so uh, I, I kind of hate that that makes me look self-absorbed, but I am, but I just don't like you to know that I am. So, so where we're going to go over the next few is how, I want to actually end this series by talking about the emotion that comes with looking in the mirror and this incredible sense that we don't measure up mostly to ourselves, self-hatred. Uh, the, the week bef- before that, I, I want to explore this like negative emotion, and what's the role of negative emotion in the human experience? And could it actually be a good thing? Like, is James crazy when he says, consider it pure joy, my friends, whenever you face trials? And, okay, if we step out of that from just the intellectual standpoint, but get into it from the emotional standpoint, like, what does it look like to embrace that? But this morning, what I want to talk about is, is emotion as it relates to the future. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, though we're working on a way that we can take live pull. And you- There's a biblical passage that talks about emotion in relation to the future. Really? And you, right from your smartphone, can switch over from ESPN right now to just answering a poll, and we'll have real results right there. And for those of you with a flip phone, then we'll, we'll give you, um, like, Morse code or something. We'll give you a flashlight, and you can, you can, you can we'll come up with some code for that. <clears throat> uh, but for how many of you, when you think about emotional intelligence and emotional pain, I, I wonder for how many of you where that translates very quickly is to the future. Uh, whether it deals with, with some circumstance that you're worrying about, whether it deals with health or finances, or w- whether you uh, find yourself in a situation where suddenly you're confronted with the fact that you too will die someday. I just I wonder for how many of you is there this profound frustration with the future? And that if you could begin to really kind of... Because we've been talking about like what grade would you give yourself? Like if you were to grade your emotional intelligence, and this week it occurred to me, that's really not a fair assessment. It's like what's your GPA? Because there's several different, like, subjects that play into your emotional intelligence. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. How exactly am I biblically supposed to grade my emotional intelligence? Agree. And I wonder if, if you became more emotionally intelligent about your future and the way you process and think about the future, how might that translate to your overall emotional health? See, I, I have no idea what this has to do with Christianity at all. I guess part of me, this was born out of this, was this realization that what gets me in trouble is when I start jumping ahead days, months, years, even decades. And that's what gets me all uh, bent out of shape. And, and have you noticed that it's not just a, a, a you thing, but a human thing that there, we have this profound infatuation with the future. It's not a Christian thing. It's not a Western thing, whether you want to talk about uh, the Chinese horoscope calendar or, or in, in the, what that culture, or you want to talk about the Aztec calendar, or you want to talk about Americans and their prophetic billboards. With me? Like, there's this, there's this desire we have to know the future. I, when I was in college, I worked in the summers for this engineering firm, and we, we tested. So there was, like, the, there was the engineering portion where those guys had... You know, they, they did stuff engineers do. I don't really know. Uh, they had air conditioning. And then there was the lab. And, and, and we tested dirt and concrete and asphalt and ran proctors on dirt and, like, compaction tests and broke concrete cylinders. It was a great summer job after spending the year thinking. And, and the, the lab had guys like me who were there just for a season. But then they had these, these veterans 
And you could imagine uh, that these guys didn't always take kindly to 19-year-old versions of me walking in the room. And so it was the type of culture, I actually really loved the culture. It reminded me of Laurel and the culture I grew up in because it was this very... Uh, hardworking, uh, no-nonsense kind of culture. One of the head lab guys who I, I really enjoyed, uh, his name was Mike, and he was the type of guy that when you shook his hand, you had to go to the ER and get stitches in your hands because his hands were just so callous and worn and just he was just a working man because he works with concrete. If you've ever touched that for 10 seconds, you'd be like, that. And I remember uh, Mike was the type of guy that if he was, uh, you really needed him to be on your team. Um, because life was miserable if he wasn't, and, and he'd walk through a wall for you if, if he was on your team. And I, one of the things I learned very quickly was Mike hated it when you tried to pressure him about the future. Like, hey, when are you going to have this result, or what's this result going to be? Especially when guys with callers walked from the air conditioning into the lab, and they started pressuring him for information about the future. And he had this statement that he would pull out in his most uh, frustrated of times, and he would just look, and I just have so many memories of him looking at uh, these different people, sometimes young guys, sometimes even me, and he would just, he would just get, have this disgusted look on his face, and he'd say, I don't know, I left my crystal ball at home. <laughs> And it's this poignant, filled statement. It's one of those statements that I've tried to, you know, like when you hear somebody say something, you're like, oh, that was funny. And then you try to use it, and you're like, oh, I'm a jerk. <laughs> that didn't, doesn't work for me at all. I don't have that temperament. So this morning what I want to jump into is, is this whole idea of the future. And this week looked like lots of other weeks, every other week where I teach, where I had all this material and all these resources and all these personal learnings and all these observations and all these questions and all these different people that I was plagiarizing. And I was kind of... Do you have a biblical text that you're going to exegete for this sermon? What is this? Work spent the whole week kind of bringing it together and weaving it together and allowing science to act as commentary to the text and all those kinds of things. And then on Friday at 11 a.m., I just like I'm pulling an audible because what I realized was that what I was trying to do was summarize one particular guy's stuff that I found to be incredibly helpful. His name is Dan Gilbert. He's a psychologist at, at Harvard. He's written a book called. Is Dan Gilbert one of the apostles? Did he write part of the New Testament? Stumbling on happiness. He's he's published numerous articles in journals and medical journals. He's a researcher on this issue of the future. And the most helpful thing I found, because I've actually spent a lot of time learning his stuff. I've read his book. I've, I've read some of his medical journals, at least the portions that I understood. I can say that I read. But the most helpful resource he put out there was actually a TED Talk called The Surprising Science of Happiness. You're, you're going to play a TED Talk for your sermon? And what I realized on Friday was, okay... I think Nary trusts me enough to know that I wasn't just sipping on pina coladas and watching the movies in my office all week. Ra- I don't even know what a pina colada is. I don't know why I choose that. What, what, what is that? It sounds like coconut and pineapple. It just sounds nasty. Anyway, so what I want to do here this morning, you guys, is, is rather than me kind of wrap it all into one, I, I, it, here's what hit me Friday, and I think it was Josh that I said it to. I think I can do a C-minus job of trying to summarize his stuff and bringing Jesus into it. But I think if the win is... You're going to summarize... <laughs> so the goal is to bring Jesus in to this guy's stuff. Really, that seems like, uh, well, a lesson in futility and totally backwards and not even close to what you're supposed to be doing as a pastor. The job of a pastor is to preach the word. Is Here's helpful information. The most honest thing we can do is go, you guys, you got to see this video. 
So what I'm going to do is, is we're going to watch this TED Talk. It's, it's about 20 minutes long, and then I want to jump up here and open up the text and spend just a few moments. I think, I think you'll see how it quickly comes back to Jesus. Let me just... Uh, okay, so some, we're going to listen to a TED Talk, and then it's supposed to come back to Jesus. Yeah, why do I feel like this isn't going to work? Let me just warn you, uh, this isn't a church service. Well, this is, ironically, what you're about to watch isn't. Some of the ideas you may or may not agree with, some of the things he uh, talks about, I think he even cusses twice, so you can cover your ears for that. But I just want you to take this in. in. As you think about this question, what does it look like to be emotionally intelligent about the future? I think why on earth at, at a Christian church would I want to ask the question or even try to answer the question? What does it look like to be emotionally intelligent about the future? Is that part of the fruit of the spirit in my life? What is this? I think Dan's stuff might blow your mind. So I invite you to turn your attention to the screen. When you have 21 minutes to speak, two million years seems like a really long time. But evolutionarily, two million years is nothing. And yet in two million years, the human brain has nearly tripled in mass. Uh-huh. And you have actual archaeological evidence for this. Uh, yeah, so he starts off you know, this TED Talk talking about evolution, which is totally just like not even true. You know, that is a scientific myth created by materialists to explain how we got here, rather than the truth is that God created us in, you know, six 24-hour days, yeah. Going from the one and a quarter pound brain of our ancestor here, Habilis, to the almost three pound meatloaf that everybody here has between their ears. What is it about a big brain that nature was so eager for every one of us to have one? Well, it turns out when brains triple in size, they don't just get three times bigger. They gain new structures. And one of the main reasons that our brain got so big is because it got a new part called the frontal lobe, and particularly a part called the prefrontal cortex. Now, what does a prefrontal cortex do for you that should justify the entire architectural overhaul of the human skull in the blink of evolutionary time? Well, it turns out the prefrontal cortex does lots of things, but one of the most important things it does is it is an experience simulator. You know, flight uh, pilots practice in flight simulators so that they don't make real mistakes in planes. Human beings have this marvelous adaptation that they can actually have experiences in their heads before they try them out in real life. This is a trick that none of our ancestors could do, that no other animal can do quite like we can. It's a marvelous adaptation. It's up there with opposable thumbs and standing upright in language as one of the things that got our species out of the trees and into the shopping mall. Now, all of you have done this. I mean, you know, Ben and Jerry's doesn't have liver and onion ice cream, and it's not because they whipped some up, tried it, and went yuck. It's because from, without leaving your armchair, you can simulate that flavor and say yuck before you make it. Let's see how your experience simulators are working. Let's just run a quick diagnostic before I proceed with the rest of the talk. Here's two different futures that I invite you to contemplate, and you can try to simulate them and tell me which one you think you might prefer. One of them is uh, winning the lottery. This is about $314 million. And the other is becoming paraplegic. So just give it a moment of thought. You probably don't feel like you need a moment of thought. And interestingly, there are data on these two groups of people, data on how happy they are. And this is exactly what you expected, isn't it? 
But these aren't the data. I made these up. These are the data. You failed the pop quiz and you're hardly five minutes into the lecture. Because the fact is that a year after losing the use of their legs and a year after winning the lotto, lottery winners and paraplegics are equally happy with their lives. Now, don't feel too bad about failing the first pop quiz because everybody fails all of the pop quizzes all of the time. The research that my laboratory has been doing, that economists and psychologists around the country have been doing, have revealed something really quite startling to us. Something we call the impact bias, which is the tendency for the simulator to work badly. For the simulator to make you believe that different outcomes are more different than in fact they really are, from field studies to laboratory studies. So Adam Hushka is going to try to tack Jesus on to the end of this guy's lecture. Yeah, that puts Jesus in the back seat, don't you think? We see that winning or losing an election, gaining or losing a romantic partner, getting or not getting a promotion, passing or not passing a college test, on and on, have far less impact, less intensity, and much less duration than people expect them to have. In fact, a recent study, this almost floors me, a recent study showing how uh, major life traumas affect people suggests that if it happened over three months ago, with only a few exceptions, it has no impact whatsoever on your happiness. Why? Because happiness can be synthesized. Sir Thomas Brown wrote in 1642, I am the happiest man alive. I have that in me that can convert poverty to riches, adversity to prosperity. I am more invulnerable than Achilles' fortune hath not one place to hit me. What kind of remarkable machinery does this guy have in his head? Well, it turns out it's precisely the same remarkable machinery that all of us have. Human beings have something that we might think of as a psychological immune system, a system of cognitive processes, largely non-conscious cognitive processes, that help them change their views of the world so that they can feel better about the worlds in which they find themselves. Like Sir Thomas, you have this machine. Unlike Sir Thomas, you seem not to know it. We synthesize happiness, but we think happiness is a thing to be found. Now, you don't need me to tell you, give you too many examples of people synthesizing happiness, I suspect. Though I'm going to show you some experimental evidence. You don't have to look very far for evidence. I, as a challenge to myself, since I say this once in a while in lectures, I took a copy of the New York Times and tried to find some instances of people synthesizing happiness. And here are three guys synthesizing happiness. I'm so much better off physically, financially, emotionally, in almost every other way, mentally, almost every other way. I don't have one minute's regret. It was a glorious experience. I believe it turned out for the best. Who are these characters who are so damn happy? Well, the first one is Jim Wright. Some of you are old enough to remember. He was the chairman of the House of Representatives. And uh, he resigned in disgrace when this young Republican named Newt Gingrich found out about a shady book deal he had done. He lost everything. Most powerful Democrat in the country lost everything. He lost his money, lost his power. What does he have to say all these years later about it? I am so much better off physically, financially, mentally, and in almost every other way. What other way would there be to be better off? Vegetably, minerally, animally? He's pretty much covering there. Maurice Bickham is somebody you've never heard of. Maurice Bickham uttered these words. Upon being released, he was 78 years old. He'd spent 37 years in Louisiana State Penitentiary for a crime he didn't commit. He was ultimately exonerated at the age of 78 through DNA evidence. And what did he have to say about his experience? I don't have one minute's regret. It was a glorious experience. Glorious! 
This guy is not saying, well, you know, there's some nice guys, they had a gym. It's glorious, a word we usually reserve for something like a religious experience. Harrius Langerman uttered these words, and he's somebody you might have known but didn't, because in 1949 he read a little article in the paper about a hamburger stand owned by these two brothers named McDonald's, and he thought, that's a really neat idea, so he went to find them. They said, we'd give you a franchise on this for 3000 bucks." Harry went back to New York, asked his brother, who was an investment banker, to loan him the $3,000, and his brother's immortal words were, you idiot, nobody eats hamburgers. He wouldn't lend him the money, and of course, six months later, Ray Kroc had exactly the same idea. It turns out people do eat hamburgers, and Ray Kroc, for a while, became the richest man in America. Oh, and then finally, you know, the best of all possible worlds. Some of you recognize this young photo of Pete Best, who was the original drummer for the Beatles, until they, you know, kind of like sent him out on an errand and snuck away and picked up Ringo on a tour. Well, in 1994, when Pete Best was interviewed, yes, he's still a drummer, yes, he's a studio musician, he had this to say, I'm happier than I would have been with the Beatles. Okay, there's something important to be learned from these people, and it is the secret of happiness. Here it is, finally to be revealed. First, accrue wealth, power, and prestige, then lose it. <laughs> Second, spend as much of your life in prison as you possibly can. Third, make somebody else really, really rich. And finally, never ever join the Beatles. Okay, now... And that's weird because, you know, at the beginning of the program, Terry Savelle Foy... You know, use the Beatles as the, well, you get what I'm saying. Weird how this works together in today's episode. I, like Z. Frank, can predict your next thought, which is, yeah, right. Because when people synthesize happiness, as these gentlemen seem to have done, we all smile at them, but we kind of roll our eyes and say, yeah, right, you never really wanted the job. Oh, yeah, right. She, you really didn't have that much in common with her, and you figured that out just about the time she threw the engagement ring in your face. We smirk because we believe that synthetic happiness is not of the same quality as what we might call natural happiness. What are these terms? Natural happiness is what we get when we get what we wanted, and synthetic happiness is what we make when we don't get what we wanted. And in our society, we have a strong belief that synthetic happiness is of an inferior kind. Why do we have that belief? Well, it's very simple. What kind of economic engine would keep churning if we believed that not getting what we want could make us just as happy as getting it? With all apologies to my friend Mathieu Ricard, a shopping mall full of Zen monks is not going to be particularly profitable because they don't want stuff enough. I want to suggest to you that synthetic happiness is every bit as real and enduring as the kind of happiness you stumble upon when you get exactly what you were aiming for. Now, I'm a scientist, so I'm going to do this not with rhetoric, but by marinating you in a little bit of data. Let me first show you an experimental paradigm that is used to demonstrate the synthesis of happiness among regular old folks. And this isn't mine. There's a 50-year-old paradigm called the free choice paradigm. It's very simple. You bring in, say, six objects, and you ask a subject to rank them from the most to the least liked. In this case, because the experiment I'm going to tell you about uses them, these are Monet prints. So everybody can rank these Monet prints from the one they like the most to the one they like the least. Now we give you a choice. We happen to have some extra prints in the closet, and we're going to give you one as your prize to take home. We happen to have number three and number four, we tell the subject. There's a bit of a difficult choice, because neither one is preferred strongly to the other, but naturally, people tend to pick 
number three because they liked it a little better than number four. Sometime later, it could be 15 minutes, it could be 15 days, the same stimuli are put before the subject and the subject is asked to re-rank the stimuli. Tell us how much you like them now. What happens? Watch as happiness is synthesized. This is the result that has been replicated over and over again. You're watching happiness be synthesized. Would you like to see it again? <laughs> happiness. The one I got is really better than I thought. That other one I didn't get sucks. That's the synthesis of happiness now. What's the right response to that? Yeah, right. Now, here's the experiment we did, and I hope this is going to convince you that yeah, right was not the right response. We did this experiment with a group of patients who had enterograde amnesia. These are hospitalized patients. Most of them have Korsakoff syndrome, a polyneurotic psychosis. that they, they drank way too much and they can't make new memories. Okay, They remember their childhood, but if you walk in and introduce yourself and then leave the room, when you come back, they don't know who you are. We took our Monet prints to the hospital and we asked these patients to rank them from the one they liked the most to the one they liked the least. We then gave them the choice between number three and number four. Like everybody else, they said, gee, thanks, doc, that's great. I could use a new print. I'll take number three. We explained we would have number three mailed to them. We gathered up our materials, and we went out of the room and counted to a half hour. <laughs> back into the room. We say, hi, we're back. The patients bless them, say, Oh, Doc, I'm sorry. I, I got a memory problem. That's why I'm here. If I've met you before, I don't remember. Really, Jim, you don't remember? I was just here with the Monet Prince. Sorry, Doc, I just don't have a clue. No problem, Jim. All I want you to do is rank these for me from the one you like the most to the one you like the least. What do they do? Well, let's first check and make sure they're really amnesiac. We asked these amnesiac patients to tell us which one they own, which one they chose last time, which one is theirs. And what we find is amnesiac patients just guess. These are normal controls. If I did this with you, all of you would know which print you chose. But if I do this with amnesiac patients, they don't have a clue. They can't pick their print out of a lineup. Here's what normal controls do. They synthesize happiness, right? This is the change in liking score, the change from the first time they ranked to the second time they ranked. Normal controls show that was the magic I showed you. Now I'm showing it to you in graphical form. The one I own is better than I thought. The one I didn't own, the one I left behind, is not as good as I thought. Amnesics do exactly the same thing. Think about this result. These people like better the one they own but they don't know they own it. <laughs> yeah, right is not the right response. What these people did when they synthesized happiness is they really, truly changed their affective, hedonic, aesthetic reactions to that poster. They're not just saying it because they own it, because they don't know they own it. Now, when psychologists show you bars you know that they are showing you averages of lots of people. And yet, all of us have this psychological immune system, this capacity to synthesize happiness, but some of us do this trick better than others. And some situations allow anybody to do it more effectively than other situations do. I need to remind you, this is a TED Talk being played as the core teaching of a sermon at Narrate, quote-unquote, church. It turns out 
that freedom, the ability to make up your mind and change your mind, is the friend of natural happiness because it allows you to choose among all those delicious futures that, and find the one that you would most enjoy. But freedom to choose, to change and make up your mind, is the enemy of synthetic happiness. And I'm going to show you why. Dilbert already knows, of course. You're reading the cartoon as I'm talking. Dogbert's tech support, how may I abuse you? My printer prints a blank page after every document. Why would you complain about getting free paper? Free? Are you just giving me my own paper? Egad, man. Look at the quality of the free paper compared to your lousy regular paper. Only a fool or a liar would say that they look the same. Huh. Now that you mention it, it does seem a little silkier. What are you doing? I'm helping people accept the things they cannot change. Indeed. The psychological immune system works best when we are totally stuck, when we are trapped. This, this is the difference between dating and marriage, right? I mean, you go out on a date with a guy and he picks his nose. You don't go out on another date. You're married to a guy and he picks his nose. Yeah, he has a heart of gold. Don't touch the fruitcake, right? You find a way to be happy with what's happened. Now, what I want to show you is that people don't know this about themselves, and not knowing this can work to our supreme disadvantage. Here's an experiment we did at Harvard. We created a photography course, a black and white photography course, and we allowed students to come in and learn how to use a darkroom. So we gave them cameras, they went around campus, they took 12 pictures of their favorite professors in their dorm room and their, you know, their dog and all the other things they wanted to have Harvard memories of. They bring us the camera, we make up a contact sheet, they figure out which are the two best pictures, and we now spend six hours teaching them about dark rooms, and they blow two of them up, and they have two gorgeous eight by ten glossies of meaningful things to them, and we say, which one would you like to give up? They say, I have to give one up? Oh, yes, we need one as evidence of the class project. So you have to give me one, you have to make a choice, you get to keep one, and I get to keep one. Now, there are two conditions in this experiment. In one case, the students are told, but you know, if you want to change your mind, I'll always have the other one here, and in the next four days before I actually mail it to headquarters, I'll be glad to, yeah, headquarters, I'll be glad to swap it out with you. In fact, I'll come to your dorm room and give, just give me an email, better yet, I'll check with you. You ever want to change your mind, it's totally returnable. The other half of the students are told exactly the opposite. Make your choice, and by the way, the mail is going out, gosh, in two minutes to England, your picture will be winging its way over the Atlantic, you will never see it again. Now, half of the students in each of these conditions are asked to make predictions about how much they're going to come to like the picture that they keep and the picture they leave behind. Other students are just sent back to their little dorm rooms, and they are measured over the next uh, six to, three to six days on their liking and satisfaction with the pictures. And look at what we find. First of all, here's what students think is going to happen. They think they're going to maybe come to like the picture they chose a little more than the one they left behind. But these are not statistically significant differences. It really, it's a very small increase, and it doesn't much matter whether they were in the reversible or irreversible condition. wrong oh, bad simulators. Because here's what's really happening, both right before the swap and five days later. People who are stuck with that picture, who have no choice, who can never change their mind, like it a lot. And people who are deliberating, should I return it? Have I gotten the right one? Maybe this isn't the good one. Maybe I left the good one. Have killed themselves. They don't like their picture. And in fact, even after the opportunity to swap has expired, they still don't like their picture. Why? Because the irreversible condition is not conducive to the synthesis of happiness. 
So here's the final piece of this experiment. We bring in a whole new group of naive Harvard students and we say, you know, we're doing a photography course and we can do it one of two ways. We could do it so that when you take the two pictures, you'd have four days to change your mind. Or we're doing another course where you take the two pictures and you make up your mind right away and you can never change it. Which course would you like to be in? Duh. 66% of the students, two-thirds, prefer to be in the course where they have the opportunity to change their mind. Hello, 66% of the students choose to be in the course in which they will ultimately be deeply dissatisfied with the picture. <laughs> because they do not know the conditions under which synthetic happiness grows. The bard said everything best, of course, and he's making my point here, but he's making it hyperbolically. Tis nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It's nice poetry, but that can't exactly be right. Is there really nothing good or bad? Is it really the case that gallbladder surgery and a trip to Paris are just the same thing? Nah, there, that seems like a one-question IQ test. They can't be exactly the same. In more turgid prose, but closer to the truth, was the father of modern capitalism, Adam Smith. And he said this. This is worth contemplating. The great source of both the misery and disorders of human life seems to arise from overrating the difference between one permanent situation and another. Some of these situations may no doubt deserve to be preferred to others. But none of them can be deserve, none of them can deserve to be pursued with that passionate ardor which drives us to violate the rules either of prudence or of justice or to corrupt the future tranquility of our minds either by shame from the remembrance of our own folly or by remorse for the horror of our own injustice. In other words, yes, some things are better than others. We should have preferences that lead us into one future over another. But when those preferences drive us too hard and too fast because we have overrated the difference between these futures, we are at risk. When our ambition is bounded... Have we learned anything about Jesus... Repentance, forgiveness of sins, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Christian sanctification, or anything that you can even remotely call biblical up to this point. The answer is, like, not even close. What is this? Why is this a sermon? It leads us to work joyfully. When our ambition is unbounded, it leads us to lie, to cheat, to steal, to hurt others, to sacrifice things of real value. When our fears are bounded... We're prudent, we're cautious, we're thoughtful. When our fears are unbounded and overblown, we're reckless and we're cowardly. The lesson I want to leave you with from these data is that our longings and our worries are both to some degree overblown because we have within us the capacity to manufacture the very commodity we are constantly chasing when we choose experience. Thank you. It, it strikes me that... <clears throat> All right, so now Adam Hushka is going to try to tack Jesus on to the end of this. Can't wait to hear that. And here's what I spent the week synthesizing myself, and now I'm just giving it to you in bifurcated chunks. Uh, doesn't it stand out to you that, that like Jesus warned us that, that 2,000 years ago, this, this man, uh, who many of us believe was Savior and Lord, uh, 
he, he seemed to warn or, or tell or remind, listen, there's this capacity that makes you uniquely human. And like so many other... Pre- uh, yeah, where is that dialogue or, you know, Sermon of Jesus? Hey, there's this capacity that makes you uniquely human. Where did Jesus say that? Privileges like so many other opportunities, like so many other uh, gifts. You can use it for ill or you can use it for good. I just... Uh, call me simplistic, but I just found myself over and over the last few months as I've been trying to reconcile what he was saying with my own desires and the, the realization that it's these like, oftentimes inaccurate projections of the future that get me in trouble. I just found myself back in one of the more profound places in literature, period, I think. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Yeah, uh, here's the problem. Um, Jesus wasn't talking about synthetic happiness or ability to synthesize happiness or emotional intelligence as it relates to the future. That's a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the kicker there is that Jesus was preaching about their lack of faith. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 is where we'll begin. We'll put context, context, context on this, and you'll see what I'm saying. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says, verse 24. He says, either, um, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You'll notice verse 25 has a therefore. Yeah, that means it's, it's tacked on to what came before. You can't serve God and money. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value of of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Yep, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his, not your own, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Yeah, so uh, Jesus here isn't talking about emotional intelligence as it pertains to the future, uh, you know, saying, Hey, there's this thing that makes you uniquely human, and that's the ability to you know, synthetically synthesize happiness. No, that's not what this is about at all. This is about their lack of faith in God and their serving of money rather than trusting of God, their merciful and kind creator. So, uh, yeah, what Adam Hushka is doing here is, well, it's uh, hermeneutical, you know, criminality is what we're talking about here. We continue. What at its core, not its religious core, what at its core, what is worry? It's a simulation of the future. 
that, that preys upon our own. Yeah, no. Uh, worry is lack of faith in the God who made you. That's what Jesus was talking about there in Matthew 6. Our own uh, suspicions and low views of life. Jesus continues, Look at the birds of the air. They did not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? There's this tendency, he seems to be saying, this tendency to project yourself out into the future. Be careful, because it'll wreck your life. Yeah, Jesus wasn't saying that at all. You're engaging in eisegesis the same way that uh, we heard you know, that speculation about Jesus being a pirate. This is the same technique, Adam. What are you doing with God's word here? You're not interpreting it correctly. You're just reading in ideas that are not in the text at all. Anybody reading Matthew 6 cold and in context would never say, hey, you know, Jesus is talking about synthetic happiness here. Not at all. Because it's often inaccurate. And maybe you're not as dependent upon those futures as you might think. And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon of all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And here I think is where Jesus gives us an alternative, a different option. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field. See, now he enters God into the conversation. If that is how he clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So why do you project negative? Why do you simulate worst case? Why do, why do you say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, these people who don't even believe God is good, who think that they're just toys that he's playing with, they believe that. They run after all these things and your heavenly father knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow for each day has enough uh, to worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This takes me back to the most simple place, and it's this place where Jesus taught his followers how to pray. Let me just remind you of this, and then we're going to pray. He says, when, when, you, when you pray, just kind of organize your thoughts around this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, yeah, yeah, God's, it's about you. And I start with you. And when you can transition from God first, he says, then just pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To to me, it just blows my mind to see how a modern Harvard scientist is telling us what Jesus says here. What is Jesus saying? Yeah, no, actually, a modern Harvard scientist was telling us nothing about Jesus at all. Didn't mention Jesus, God, repentance, forgiveness of sins, faith in Christ. Didn't mention any of those at all. Just just remind yourself that getting your way is a terrible strategy for happiness just 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 remind yourself that what you signed up for was you wanted god's will not your own and then he says these six simple but incredibly arduous words give us today our daily bread what is that it's 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 as much a reminder as it is a prayer isn't it it's a reference to the daily bread is a reference to, oh yeah, God, whatever situation you've, you've put me in, you've, you've been faithful. And it doesn't mean that the diagnosis has always been positive. It doesn't mean that nobody I love has died, but you've always been faithful. The apostle Paul was onto this, wasn't he? When he said things like, man, there was all this stuff that I thought I had to have. And now I say it's rubbish. 
compared to Christ. Yeah, that's um, Philippians 3, and it was not the stuff I had to have. It was all of his good works under the law, all of his righteousness under the law. He considers rubbish so that he may be found in Christ not having a righteousness of his own, but the righteousness that comes or is by faith. That's what Philippians 3 says. You've just twisted two passages of Scripture now while trying to tack Jesus on to the back end of that TED Talk. He was on to this, wasn't he, when he says that the, the peace of Christ transcends all understanding. There's this question. What does it look like to be emotionally intelligent as it relates to the future? Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about because this has nothing to do with Christian sanctification at all. And you'll have your own wrestling and thinking to do, and you can re-listen to this TED podcast all, all you like. Why would I want to do that? For me... And I guess I'm going to suggest for you what it may look like is first and foremost catching yourself feeling things about the future. Yeah, so first catch yourself feeling things about the future, right. And then having the, the, the presence of mind to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is the way I'm wired. This is, this is what God has given my brain the ability to do. But it's generally wrong. It often doesn't get it right anyway. And, and what I think I have to have... I don't. God is there. He goes before me. He's always been faithful. And I want his will, not my own. What does it mean to be emotionally intelligent about the future? I think, and this is where I love doing life with you guys, I think it means first and foremost we have the opportunity to understand through science the way our brains are made to get deeper into what it means to be made. in Yeah, so the way cr true Christian sanctification happens is through scientific understanding of how our brains are made. Ugh, man. ...in the image of God, to understand that we have the ability to simulate the future, but to not trust those simulations, but instead to go, no, no, no. There's my Heavenly Father. I don't always know what's next, but I know He's there. And I'm, trust, I'm trusting that simulation of the future. And I'm using the cross and the reminder of how much he loves me in the cross to know. Yeah, what did Jesus do on the cross? Again, could you give me some of the details and what it means for us? That even in my darkest pain, he's there. And he's good. I'd like to pray and we're going to give you a chance to sing a song that I think captures this God. So, guy, we, we just come before you. Done. Wow. A whole lot of nothing. A couple Bible verses out of context, uh, and then, you know, he eisegeted into those texts uh, what uh, that scientist said. But none of what that scientist said is actually in those texts if you were to engage in sound biblical exegesis. Total twisting of God's word, all piously done, too, even mentioning the name Jesus. But ultimately, you learn absolutely nothing, sound, sound, solid, or anything about Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, or anything like that. Total waste. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus commands us to do, make disciples, baptizing, teaching all that he has commanded. 
think about it. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.